0: Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable. Bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button.
1: Starting October 2nd, catch Red Lights, starring Killian Murphy, Sigourney Weaver, and Elizabeth Olsen. And starting October 5th, don't miss The Details, starring Toby Maguire, Elizabeth Banks, and Laura Linney. Available on demand before it hits theaters.
0: The latest independent films are ready when you are, with Movies on Demand on Cable. The Art House is now in your house.
1: From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer
0: and I'm Allison Wilmore. Coming up on this bonus episode of SBU, we contemplate whether or not it's time to deliver a eulogy for film, which, according to a slew of articles published online in the last few weeks, is officially or unofficially Dead.
1: But first up is opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight one recommended title and give you a rundown of some other notable films new on demand on cable. Allison, what is our pick this week?
0: Our pick is Sound of My Voice, which is available on demand starting on October 2nd directed by Zal Batmanglij, who co-wrote the screenplay with star Brit Marling. This is one of uh, actually two films that Marling starred in and helped write at the 2011 Sundance Film Festival. The other was Another Earth with director Mike Cahill about the discovery of a planet identical to our own. And now A Sound of My Voice is also an indie twist on a kind of genre idea. In this case, it's about a couple who get involved with a cult led by a woman named Maggie, played by Marling, who claims to have come back from the future to help protect a small group of people and is based out of a basement in the valley, I think, as far as they they ever figure out where it is. And the couple is there to uh, make a documentary exposing this cult, but they start to get drawn in by the very structure and by the fact that Maggie is a charismatic leader who meets every challenge thrown at her.
1: Somewhere in the valley, there is a woman living in a basement. She's actually amassing followers, these people who believe that she'll lead them to salvation or whatever. And yes, she's dangerous, but we have to see this thing through all the way. We began by preparing on the outside. Well, this transmitter records everything from the camera. We go out of range outside of 50 feet. Peter, that's too big to swallow. People need to see a video of Maggie. No way. Couldn't tell the exact location of the house. We were in the van for approximately 20 minutes. First night is always the most difficult. To see her is to believe her. Of course, that's how these cons work. You see, the anchor is the sign of a traveler. And the number 54 refers to where I come from. 2054. Your future. Now, Matt, you saw this movie, right? I did. I've seen it twice already.
0: So what do you think about the way that they kind of pose Maggie as... They leave it very mysterious as to how much she's just a calculated con woman, a tiny bit of a possibility that... uh, She could be telling the truth. Yeah.
1: Yes, it's an interesting movie. It is um, ambiguous in some ways. I think for some people, the ambiguity of the ending, which we certainly won't spoil, would turn off some people and I think maybe frustrated some audiences that the filmmakers played very close to the vest, even right up to the very end. Some people I know were very frustrated by that. Me, I kind of liked it because I felt like that ambiguity fed right back into the core idea of the movie, which is about belief and about faith. When someone comes to us and says, I am from the future, and I will lead you through this dark future that's about to happen, do we believe them or do we distrust them? And so the movie, even up to the very end, lets us decide for ourselves. Is she real or is it a, a hoax? I love that about it.
0: Yeah, I love that too. And it's a, it's a very good performance from Marling, who really defies all, I think, of the normal expectations you would have of a potential cult leader. Right. And the film does a lot of very clever things in terms of how the character deals with someone asking a question like a very reasonable question about being like if you're from the future why don't you tell us something that happens it's going to happen soon to prove right, it
1: right. prove
0: and it, to me exactly and the way that she handles that is really interesting it also has a great moment where they ask her to sing a song from the future <laughs> that is probably the best I think my favorite uh, part of the film I think it's handled it's definitely one of really the way.
1: highlight scenes no question <laughs> yes. no question I think you could also uh, make the case that the movie is uh, uh, one large metaphor about filmmaking specifically like independent filmmaking it's about having the faith to say, I'm going to make this tiny little thing, and I have no money and no support, but I want you all to come along with me on this crazy journey, and it's going to take a lot of faith and trust in me to do it. And I think it's reflected, again, in the content of the movie, which is so small and has very little in the way of budget and effects. I mean, I love the way, and again, some people might not, but I really spark to the way that this movie Creates this whole world out of almost nothing. I mean, so much of the movie does p- take place in this schlubby, carpeted, bland beige basement in the valley, but it's got this huge kind of sci-fi uh, mythos to it. And I know, just speaking to people, that some people were like, "Well, I want more. I want to see more. I want to." But to me, it was like, "But that's what it's about. It is about." I'm going to give you the the bland beige basement, and are you going to come along for the ride or not? And it's a, just a great kind of Rorschach test for the audience.
0: Yeah, and it's also, I think, if you. Really liked the processing scenes in the master there 's a little bit of similarity to i think the way that in this film shows how someone basically tries to like just use the force of their will on someone else uh, and to really kind of like to bring like force that belief from someone, uh, even though I think they 're very different films but yeah it's a it 's a really it's a smart and a very promising indie, and yeah. I think, both from the, for the director and for the star.
1: One of my favorites of the year. Definitely recommend it. So when does that one come
0: out on demand again? That is on demand October 2nd.
1: All right. And do we have a couple other additional picks as well?
0: We do. Um, these are actually now all available. So you can find these currently on demand. The first is Damsels in Distress, which is the latest film from Whit Stillman, director of The Great Metropolitan, Last Days of Disco. Damsels in Distress is a comedy starring Greta Gerwig, the former mumblecore darling turned rising star. and She plays the leader of a group of girls on a college campus who try to improve the lives of those around them in very idiosyncratic, uh, somewhat academic ways. Wit Stillman-esque ways. Uh, the film also stars Adam
1: Brody and Annalie Tipton. I haven't seen this one yet. I'm dying to see it. Yeah, it? I haven't it? seen it yet either. Okay, so yeah. this is one we'll be checking out as well, and we got one. We have one or two more suggestions? Yes,
0: uh, this is another one I haven't seen, but that uh, I'm very curious about, which mm-hmm. is the English remake of Pusher, which was a 1996 Danish film from Nicholas uh, Vinding Refn, who did Drive, He's a very talented Bronson. director. Bronson, yeah, and yes. made a trilogy of pusher yes um so it's about basically a very bad week in the life of a drug dealer, mm-hmm. um, played in this version by Richard Coyle. Uh, the film also stars the model Agnes Dean and Zlatko Buric, who uh, reprises the role of the Serbian drug lord Milo. He played in the original right. Pressure
1: trilogy. And this one played at Fantastic Fest, which I just got back from, the festival in Austin, Texas, with all kinds of funky, weird genre movies. It, it went over fairly well. Most people who saw the original said it's a pretty good English. English. English language remake of the original, but maybe not all that essential. That was basically what they said. It's very, very faithful, maybe too faithful. The one thing that has me interested, which I did not realize while it was playing down there, uh, I I did not see it. But if I had known this, I might have, you know, sought it out. Richard Coyle, is the main guy. And I know him as one of the characters from Coupling, the British Mm. sitcom, which I I watched with my wife a few years ago and loved. And he was like the goofy guy. (laughs) He was the kind of the silly, almost like Kramer-esque member of the group. He was weird and, you know, kind of the lovable goofball. And I cannot imagine him uh, as the tough but unsuccessful drug dealer and i watched the trailer for this last night and i was going i can't believe it's <laughs> jeff from coupling and he's uh, running for his life from drug dealer. so yeah. that has me curious
0: that's interesting and i if, if you haven't seen the original pusher trilogy definitely highly recommended i particularly recommend the last one which is about Burch and his character but they're all three of them are very tense uh fun crime dramas so okay. that's a uh, pusher it's currently available and one more film it uh, available on demand is How to Survive a Plague which is a documentary directed by David France about the 80s activist organizations who fought to bring attention to the need for AIDS treatments and for better availability uh, you know for them as a the disease was devastating the gay population and they did things like uh protesting the high cost of the HIV drug AZT they pushed government officials to take action uh they even worked with Merck in the development of you know new drugs so this documentary actually recently opened in theaters and has been one of the be- like m- most acclaimed and best reviewed docs of the year so it's now available on demand it's a good chance to see something that uh has gotten a lot of attention in theaters
1: So because this is a bonus episode, we are not going to have cue shots for you yet, and we're still waiting to see the results of our listeners' choice poll, which is still very close. We've got a neck-and-neck race between the Bond fans and the Star Trek fans who are – i think there might be just two people honestly who because just it seems to be where one per- one movie jumps into the lead and then the other movie seems to catch up so i think that there's just two people just sitting at their computers going no it can't be the wrath of khan <laughs> click 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 click, and then no it can't be from russia with love but we'll see and we'll find out next week which ones wins and we'll have a review of whatever film that might be but in the meantime just since we're here and we thought we might talk for just a few minutes about this you know out of nowhere, uh, rash of articles all about this concept that movies are dying or dead. There's been a whole bunch in recent weeks. You know, I left for Fantastic Fest and I came back and I feel like, you know, I didn't even know film was sick. <laughs> and it's and I came back and film is dead. <laughs> you know, I hadn't even heard film was in the hospital. And I didn't even have a chance to send flowers. But, yeah, there's been this whole rash of articles, two in the New Republic, one called Has Hollywood Murdered the Movies by David Denby, who's generally a critic for The New Yorker. And then we had another article called American Movies Are Not Dead, Colon, They Are Dying. Uh, that was by David Thompson, the critic and, and writer of many uh, excellent books about film. And then... Uh, we had another article just recently within the last two days as we're recording this called Is Movie Culture Dead? Question mark And that one's by Andrew O'Hare from Salon, an excellent writer, excellent critic, also bemoaning the death of film. And all three sort of take different tactics, but they're all basically circling the same ideas, which is that Film is in some ways dying or dead, that film culture is over, that it's been replaced by television. That's a common theme. That uh, Hollywood mainstream movies are boring and awful, that they've gotten worse than they used to be, that they used to be grand and glorious, and um, now they are, particularly in the Denby article, that they have been basically replaced by these boring digital superhero movies. That, you know, in the past, I think he kind of makes a comparison between, like, Stagecoach as sort of this one past example of of the glory days. And compared with the Avengers, that that is sort of the example of of like the low point. He yeah he really hates the Avengers. Wow, which is an interesting movie uh, to oh, yeah, sort that, of take for, as the to as the nadir. That one. Yeah. yeah, I mean he does also talk about Transformers, but he harps a lot about the Avengers. The Avengers huh. as this sort of example of digital that it's the digital, digital, digital that these characters have no weight, that there's no mm. physics, that it's all cartoonish, and the villains they're fighting are meaningless. They have yeah. no personalities. That the whole fate of the world is on the line and when the whole fate of the world is on the line nothing's on the line there's no stakes and so he's sort of talking about how you know he misses the olden days basically and that's kind of the similar note that's struck in all of these and so i was just wondering uh allison what you think i mean you're an interesting person to get a reaction from on this because you've written about film for years. We do this podcast. We've done podcasts for years. But now you're also doing t- a lot of TV coverage. You're the TV editor at IndieWire. So when people either blame TV or say TV is ascendant and movies are on the decline, what do you think about that? How do you respond?
0: Well, I do think TV is ascendant in certain ways. In the, I, I think that TV is in the process of becoming a lot more sophisticated mm-hmm. than You know, I don't think anyone would deny that. We're seeing a lot of shows that are more artistically and thematically ambitious uh, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, Sopranos, you know, The Wire. You had all of these shows, most of them on cable, that were really challenging the idea of serialized storytelling as it used to exist on television Mm -hmm. that really brought up amazing themes. But I mean, I don't think that that would diminish film in any way. I do think that TV benefits a lot from having a medium that you know, the inter- like people watching things at home. And that, of course, you know, is where where we're all tending right now. Right, People are moving away from going out to see the movies. And, I, you know, everyone has a TV and you don't even need a cable. You just need an an- a digital antenna to pick up at least some channels. So right. there's a certain democratic nature and ease to TV that really, you know, has benefited it as people have become less willing to go to the theater, right. go to the
1: multiplex, whatever. It's really interesting to read these articles right now. I feel like a month ago, I might have been more receptive to them because of right at the end of the, you know, summer movie season, there were You can a
0: feel ton. really numb, uh, yeah.
1: It can be pretty depressing. And it wasn't a great summer at the movies. But on the other hand, yeah. you know, Denby in particular, I feel like is the most intense article and maybe the one that i i take the most issue with you know he's complaining about a certain kind of movie making that doesn't exist like sort of the mid-range movie that right now you can make a good independent movie for no money or you can make a gigantic soulless corporate thing for 200 million dollars and there's no in between and yet i look at the movies that are out right now that i've seen just in the last couple of weeks movies like looper movies like the master and i go if movies are dead, if movie culture is dead, how am I seeing these amazing movies, you know? And I just got back from Fantastic Fest where I saw a movie like Cloud Atlas, which hasn't opened yet, um, which didn't cost $200 million, which was a, like something like a $90 million budget done entirely outside the studio system. And maybe Denby would say, well, that's the problem is that studios aren't taking chances on filmmakers like this anymore. But I don't we really, don't need them. What does right? it matter how the movie got made yeah. if it exists and it's this $90 million, hugely ambitious movie? Isn't that what we ultimately want? Yeah. Does it matter if it was made by a studio or if it was made by investors from other countries?
0: Yeah. Or, I mean, like, you know, even a film like Sound of My Voice, which was made, like, obvi- obviously on a very low budget. Yes. But was made by people being like, this is how much we have to work with. And we know that. And we are going to make a film that can work within the scope of that. And that cannot will not necessarily feel like we're you know reaching for something and failing to you know be able to afford to have the
1: effects for right, it. Right. It
0: never feels like it's being constrained in that way. Yeah, yeah.
1: Maybe I'm, I'm maybe I'm at a disadvantage because I just got back from Fantastic Fest, which is this insane festival. It's in Austin, Texas. You go down there, you sit in a movie theater for ten days straight or eight days straight, whatever it is, watching all these insane movies from all over the world. And I go, if film is dead why do people enjoy going there and why are there all these fantastic movies there and you really have a wonderful film culture now you could say well it's a niche culture this is not mainstream this is we're no longer in the days when a movie would come out and 100 million people would go to see it and i'd know that several of those articles bring that up is that there is sort of this nicheification of film culture and i guess my feeling is isn't there a nicheification if that's a word, of everything in every culture right now, I guess there's this belief that everyone in the world is watching Breaking Bad, but I don't know that the ratings necessarily bear that out.
0: It's not really that high
1: rated at all. Right. So I don't understand how that gets held up. Well, look, everyone's talking about Louis.
0: Yeah. The ratings
1: of that are not that high either. Right. Right. Exactly. And uh, I don't, I just, I, I feel like... It's a lot it's interesting because like in Denby's piece he in the very beginning of his piece he really talks about how nostalgia is uh is dangerous you know he says here I'll read it nostalgia is history altered through sentiment what's necessary for survival is not nostalgia but defiance I've I'm made crazy by the way the business structure of movies is now constricting the art of movies and then he proceeds to complain in a way that suggests he's nostalgic for a different period of the movies he's basically complaining that the nostalgia that drives modern movies is inferior to the nostalgia that he has for a different period of movies. Am I wrong? I mean, yeah, that I just think, seems outrageous.
0: You're, I think you're right. And I think, you know what, we you know came of age in a different era yes. of movies than, than these uh, these writers did. And these writers are all different ages as well. Yes, I think that when I read these pieces, which I feel like have been kind of a sporadic thing that have happened also, like waves of them, waves of film culture is dead. I read these articles know, in, in college. Yeah, too. exactly. Well, come out. I think that there is still that sense of like because something. It's the same way when you're like the music that tends to still like be the most resonant to you. It's the music you listen to when you were a teenager, right? right. When you were right. you care the most about music and you are the most yes. receptive to music. And these things are new to you and you are exploring them. And I feel like there is that sense of like because film culture is no longer is no longer as it was for people when they were kind of the like you know formative days of film culture for mm-hmm. them. That that then it's lost, you know, because it's no longer like that. But it's just changing. Right. You know, how we consume film is
1: just changing. There's a difference between dying and evolving. Right. right? And, And I think in this case, what we might see is that film culture is evolving, not necessarily dying. I mean, we live in this world where when I read David Denby's article about film dying and he's talking about stagecoach I can turn on my computer and I can go watch stagecoach right that instant on my computer in a very nice HD print on Hulu which I did after I read his article if film is dead how it, how can I do that I mean I understand yes maybe celluloid is is dying maybe projecting film is dying maybe movie theaters might be going away in some cases in some instances but I feel like in some ways the world of film is almost more vibrant than it's ever been. I mean, if you want to watch these movies, they're more available now than they've ever been before, you know? So there's more competition for my eyeballs. There's more things out there to do. But there's also more ways to consume these things than there ever were before. So I feel like that's also a counterargument to what he's talking about.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I think that – and Andrew O'Hare brought this up in his piece. They think, you know, for better or worse – the many more people are able to make movies, you know, it's like the, the, it's so much cheaper and more affordable and just easier in general for people to make them. You're seeing many more films out there. And I think that maybe we won't, won't have the film that, uh, well, I mean even the Avengers, probably a large portion of the people who ever see movies are able to see movies in the world have seen The Avengers at this point, mm-hmm. so the idea that there is one movie that you know like hundreds of millions of people like go see I mean that's still around right It just might not be a movie that he like david you know he didn't find he can relate to, talk to. About. Yeah. yeah but i I think that there are so many more movies, and what we're seeing is the like the abundance, and because of that, the fact that like you know, not everyone is going to get around to see the same thing. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Right. Nichification is not necessarily a bad thing. I think it just means that you're going to have many more pockets of, you know, film fans who are able to pursue a particular interest. And, you know, that's just the way that on-demand culture has allowed us to become. Right.
1: And when you see that the master has these huge record breaking grosses and in, in small release and looper uh, does what better than it's expected to when it Opens in theaters, you go. Well, maybe there's maybe there's a little hope yet. Uh, you know, film was it was dead. Somebody has already like electroshocked it with the uh, cardio, whatever they're called, paddles, and brought it back to life. And I I I just don't feel that pessimistic right now. I don't know why. Usually I am a pretty cynical person, but uh, I guess that uh, trip to Fantastic Fest has a way of making you feel like film is alive and well. I don't know. Just to cap things off here, we're going to have Allison going through some expiring titles on Netflix. But I just want to point out one other indication. Uh, in my mind, that film culture is not dead, which is to take a look at some of the popular titles on Netflix, Mm -hmm. Instant, which if film was dead and people have terrible taste and all this sorts of thing would be just the worst garbage imaginable. But I'm looking at the list right now of the most popular titles on Netflix in the last 24 hours according to instantwatcher.com, and they include Headhunters, which is a Norwegian thriller, fantastic movie, uh, the Tall Man, which was one of our listeners' choice options, which is a new one with Jessica Biel, comes from a French director of some... Uh, uh, the director is interesting, even if the film may or may not be. Right. You've got, at number eight, Shotgun Stories, which is the first film from Jeff Nichols, a, and a very highly film. regarded film, a yeah. great film. Coriolanus, an adaptation of Shakespeare (laughs) from Ray Fiennes. That's at number six. Yeah, that's not really a superhero. No, not at all. The number 10, Clown, the uh, Danish comedy, which we've recommended on the show. A fabulous movie. Those are all in the top 10 most watched or at least most popular in the last 24 hours on Netflix.
0: That's great. And I mean, something like Clown is not the kind of title that you would think would like, you know, be able
1: to really carve out a large audience. And yet people are finding it. Right. That's what I'm saying. Like, These movies are fantastic, and they're finding an audience somewhere, you know – Evolving, not dying. I guess that's my refrain. I'm going to repeat one more time. All right. What are some expiring titles that people should be on the look for this week before they vanish? Right.
0: We want to give you a few more expiring titles since uh, on the regular episode, we didn't really get to.
1: We recorded it early. There weren't a ton that were listed as expiring yet.
0: Right. All right. So these are all expiring off of Netflix. Uh, The first is The Secret of Kells, the 2009 animated film, expiring October 5th. Um, You know, voiced by Evan McGuire, Brendan Gleeson. Uh, this was you know the kind of surprise I think uh, Academy Award Best Animated Feature nomination in 2010 because it was a smaller film than uh, the you know the ones that tend to get nominated so uh, this is not a film I've seen and I'm looking forward to seeing it before it disappears expiring on October 6th is Rockers the 1977 Jamaican film that uh, stars a lot of reggae artists uh, including Leroy, Horsemouth, Wallace, Burning Spear, uh, Big Youth, and others. Uh supposed to be a really great glimpse into reggae culture uh, in the late 70s. It was originally planned as a documentary, kind of became a feature. Uh, and finally, expiring on October 13th, is the 2001 film Tape, which is directed by Richard Linklater, written by Sean Belber, uh, based on his play, takes place entirely inside a Lansing, Michigan motel room, told in real time, uh, stars Ethan Hawke, Robert Sean Leonard, and Uma Thurman, uh, as, you know, a group of friends who share difficult history so uh that expires october 13th
1: that is a good movie okay well we'll be back next week with a regular episode of svu with opening break cue shots and the movie review you pick star trek or james bond i can't (laughs) wait to see which wins in the meantime you can send us feedback to svu at filmspottingsvu.com we do have a new Feedback email. We were getting some cross pollination. People wanting to feedback the regular film spotting original recipe show were sending us their feedback, and vice versa. So we've tried to make it a little bit easier and a little clearer. Um, we'll still get the old ones to the old email address, but our new email account for feedback svu at filmspottingsvu spotting svu.com
0: And film dot com is also where you can find our show archive, uh, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Film Spotting SVU Remixed Theme Song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. And you can follow me and Matt on Twitter at twitter.com slash Wilmore and twitter.com slash matt singer. You can follow the show at twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore
1: And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening.